Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About the Power of the Police. We aren't used to talking about police. It's not something that we have debates about in any rational kinds of ways. I mean, we can have lots of debates about what the welfare policy might be, how affordable housing policies might work, but the matter of good policing is never on anybody's agenda. We avoid that. We don't know how to talk about it. And I think that's a problem. Civilian control of the police is one of the hallmarks of Canadian democracy. Police answer to the courts, to public boards, and to complaints commissions. Media report freely on police misconduct. Compare this to the parts of the world where the majority of citizens expect only extortion and brutality from their police. And it's easy to be thankful that our police forces are as well controlled as they are. But even in Canada, a lot of what the police do still escapes supervision. Police boards are as likely to be controlled by their police forces as the other way around. And politicians remain reluctant to criticize the police. So is this glass half full or half empty? That's the question tonight as we continue with In Search of Security by David Cayley. It's an old saying that security trumps politics. Frame an issue as a question of security and you preempt messy dialogue about it. When the police arrive, you do what you're told. This is an astonishing power and difficult to look in the eye. For those who exercise it, it produces what is sometimes called police culture. Bob Lunny is a retired police officer who served as chief in Edmonton and Peel and commissioner of police in Winnipeg. When I asked him about police culture, these were the characteristics he mentioned. Insularity, a tendency to um, fixate on power and authority, that's all part of it. Defensiveness, defined by the the blue wall, which uh, suggests that uh, police close ranks around any problems and don't let anyone else in, that they close ranks and uh, uh, will not inform on wrongdoing done by any of their members. Uh, and all of those negative kinds of things. And there, there is a, uh, you know, a dark side to that police culture. I've seen it everywhere I've been, even in the best organizations. I, I used to describe it as a, as a shitty dark stain running through our business. Uh, and some places are deeper than others. Policing's dark side is inherent in its license to use coercive power. Police, by their very presence, embody the fact that social order ultimately rests on force. And this is something that liberals sometimes have trouble facing, according to Chris Murphy. He's the head of the Sociology and Anthropology Department at Dalhousie University, where he studies and writes about policing. There's an ambivalent relationship to police premised on the fact that you need them, and they admit, they're kind of an admission of some imperfection in, in society that, that we liberals don't like particularly, and that the use of force and coercion is necessary to make people agree to behave in certain kind of collective ways is, is all a kind of difficult thing for liberally disposed academics to deal with. So on one hand, we need them. We know there's crime. We know there's conflict. We know that 
force needs to be exercised, but somehow it has to be done in a way that's fair and equitable, accountable, and fits our other liberal sensibilities. So some have just given up trying to make that kind of dual rationalization work and simply are critics and others are promoters. But if you try and walk that line between what's a kind of reasonable position to take, you're constantly kind of of second-guess yourself. The difficulty of maintaining a balanced view of police, Chris Murphy says, makes it easy to collapse into either pure boosterism or pure critique. And there is another reason for looking away from the police as well, according to Susan Eng, a former chair of the Toronto Police Services Board. The stated needs and expectations of our society are that they treat everybody fairly, that they do not abuse the law, that no one is above the law, that their standards of conduct respect uh, human rights and civil rights and civil liberties. However, the great hypocrisy in society, I think, is that despite the fact that we claim that about ourselves, our, our expectation that we want to treat everybody equitably, we in fact don't. We in fact want the police to continue their 17th century responsibility of keeping the vagabonds from the door. That's how they were created. And that hasn't changed. And if you ask anybody for public consumption, they say, oh, yes, we're against police misconduct or abuse of authority or overuse of force. But when it comes to their front door and what they would like the police to do to the person who is uh, threatening their family, they would like his head beaten. And they don't care what the rules are. And until our society comes to grips with that dichotomy in our thinking, the police will continue to have to make split-second decisions based upon who's going to complain more loudly. The people in power who have property, who are educated, who have access to complaints, or the person in front of him who is indigent, who has uh, lack of English ability, who has lack of power in society. I mean, it's an easy choice. The hypocrisy Susan Eng sees and the ambivalence Chris Murphy mentioned earlier, can add up to a disinclination to exert firm control or set clear policy for the police. John Sewell is a former mayor of Toronto. He's the author of a book called simply Police and one of the moving forces behind the Toronto Police Accountability Coalition. One of the great problems in in local politics is that if you talk even in a constructive way about how police should be better managing their affairs and better delivering their services, you are seeing as being in favor of more crime and being against the police. You know, when you talk about how you want to improve a recreation service and how it's not being delivered in the appropriate manner and that we should shift it around and do it in a different way, nobody says, oh, that guy's against recreation for kids. Now they say, oh, okay, so he thinks it should be done in a different way. Oh, okay. But if you try and suggest those things about the police, the police supporters and maybe the police themselves immediately target you as a person who's who's standing in the way of the police. It's really shocking in our society. It means we can't have a rational debate about how good policing might work in our society. Police and their supporters, in John Sewell's view, discourage constructive criticism of policing. He found this out the hard way when he was mayor of Toronto, and the police actively and successfully campaigned against his re-election. 
The reason, as he recalls, went back to 1978, when he was first elected. The police burst into a man's house, and they killed him. They shot him to death. He was in his own room. He happened to be, I guess you'd say, mentally ill, you know, hard to, a known character, known to police as being someone who was out on the street and doing weird things, never dangerous things. But anyway, the police killed him. He happened to be a black man. And that was the eighth time in 13 months that the police had shot and killed someone in Toronto. And as I recall, I think all eight of them were people of color. The issue was front page news, of course, uh, because he was killed in his own room, trying to defend himself with a mattress. I mean, you know, and saying to the police, get out of my room. I mean, you know, he didn't have a gun or anything like that. So I gave a speech. As mayor, you get to give a speech every second day or so, and you never quite know what you're going to do it. I usually wrote most of them myself. Uh, my theory is you know, this is my chance to give political speeches to people I normally wouldn't do. So I think this was something like the Firemen's Insurance Association or something like that. I spoke about the shooting of Albert Johnson and how that this is not the way that police should be acting. We do not deserve to have a police force that, in fact, is shooting so many people and killing so many people, that we've got to find other ways of dealing with this, that I thought this was a big policing issue. John Sewell's speech resulted in a public inquiry and a temporary end to police shootings. No one else was killed by police in Toronto for 16 months. But he had made an enemy of the police, and this hostility deepened when he also criticized the police for their treatment of gays and argued for an independent body to investigate complaints against the police. I thought we needed some independent mechanism to deal with complaints against the police. It was an issue that people had brought forward on many occasions, just on the basis that, you know, if you make a complaint, you want to make sure it's dealt with. And given that you're dealing with the police who have these extraordinary powers, as indeed they should have in society, I'm not, a, not quarreling with that, they should have those powers, they should be exercised with considerable discretion, and when people make complaints, they should have the feeling that the complaint will be dealt with fairly. And for that reason, a number of people said, what we need is some independent mechanism to monitor complaints against the police. Maybe you let the chief deal with the complaint on the first basis, but if the person isn't happy with the way it happens, then there should be some sort of independent means mech that begins to monitor what happens and you can have a, an appeal of the chief's decision and so forth. Um, so I worked really hard to get provincial legislation that would do that in Toronto. And indeed we did. And at the end of my term, we actually set up, had legislation setting up an independent complaints mechanism for the Toronto Police. John Sewell faced re-election in 1980. His frankness by then had made him other enemies than just the police. But the police played a prominent and possibly decisive part in the campaign against him. The police were, were very tough. Uh, it, there were big headlines in the paper. They were raising money against me to make sure I never got reelected. They posted signs in a number of police stations saying, flush Sewell down the drain. I know that many of my supporters were very worried about wearing buttons saying I'm voting for Sewell. Just on the thought that a cop would use that as an excuse to, to cause you some harm. And you know, similarly, having signs in your cars and all those kinds of things. So, I mean, they created some, some degree of intimidation that's uh, entirely improper, but in fact, there was no one who would speak out against it. 
Uh, obviously, I, I mean, I think they were very effective, and <laughs> I, I lost by one vote a poll. So that's about two thousand votes. About two thousand votes. Yeah, I that's lost. Not a, much. The, the Art Eggleton, who was elected mayor, got eighty-eight thousand votes. I got eighty-six thousand votes. So uh, it was a very, very small number of votes. And sure, I suspect that the police intervention had a lot to do with that. Since his defeat in 1980, John Sewell has closely followed the politics of policing in Toronto. And he says that he has again and again seen police target politicians who don't show uncritical support. Politicians hate dealing with policing in Toronto anyway, because they'll be attacked by the police uh, association. I mean, we, we've got lots of examples of that. We, you know, Susan Ng, who was the, the chair of the police commission, uh, was just vilified by, by the, the police rank and file on a regular basis. Judy Scro, who was an appointee, a member of council, and then appointed to the police services board, uh, was severely attacked by the police association. In fact, they even hired private detectors to follow her around. Real serious intimidation. Very, very frightening. In fact, uh, uh, Craig Brommel, the head of the police association, you know, said, yeah, of course I did that. I don't, I don't have any problem saying that. You know, to sort of, hey, I'm in charge. Well, he, he tried to be. And then uh, Olivia Chow, also appointed by Toronto City Council to sit on the police commission, was also driven out of there as well as they threatened to sue her. So there's, there's a lot of fear by politicians of speaking up on policing. <laughs> this bullying of its more critical members has made Toronto's Police Services Board more timid in John Sewell's view. He regularly attends the board's meetings as a member of the Toronto Police Accountability Coalition. As an example of the board's timidity, he cites its unwillingness to set policy for the police on strip searches. Strip searches, I think everyone would agree, is probably the most invasive thing that a police organization can do to you. They arrest you, they strip search you, they check into your body parts. Ooh, not very much fun. These are not people you know. I mean, it's, you know, often as, as people have said, it's done with the door open and so forth. The Supreme Court of Canada came out with a decision in uh, late 2001 that said, and it was a decision relating to the Toronto Police Force saying strip searches are a bad thing. They're really intimidating people, and they should happen very, very rarely. Well, you have to have a really, really, really good reason to do a strip search. Now, what would a good reason be? Well, the person might be secluding on themselves something that would allow them to kill themselves. That would be a good reason to do a strip search, I think. Or they might be secluding on themselves something that they could cause harm to others with, a knife or a gun or something like that. If you had good reasons for thinking those were the case, you could probably do a strip search. But as we know, they've been doing strip searches on people who they're picking up for parking tickets or I mean, just <laughs> incredible things. Anyway, the, the, the Supreme Court of Canada said, uh, you know, you just can't do these things as much as you're, you're doing them. Sorry. So our organization tried to get the Toronto Police Services Board to adopt a policy in conformity with the Supreme Court of Canada decision. You'd think this would be pretty easy to do, right? And we got the leading court of the land saying something. We've got police practice, which is entirely different. And you'd think we could get the board to say, okay, yeah, let's have a policy that's in conformity with the court decision. The answer is no. 
In fact, our attempts to get the board to actually create a policy have failed miserably. The police has refused to report on a policy in conformity with uh, the, the Supreme Court decision. And in fact, we're even in the position where today, about 40% of the people who are arrested get strip searched in total contravention of the Supreme Court of Canada. About 40% of everybody who's arrested gets strip searched. In Toronto? In Toronto, yeah. How do you know? Well, this is just the data we've got from people. I mean, the police won't tell us what it is. <laughs> okay, that's your uh, own research. Well, and that, yeah, and, and I mean, other, other journalists have, have also looked at it, and that's the conclusion they've sort of come to, that it looks like that's what happens. And you talk to a criminal, they think, yeah, a lot of people are strip searched for no reason at all. And you think this is wrong? It shouldn't be happening. The court has said it's wrong. It's only intimidating people. It's, it's a massive show of police power. But you'd think the police services board should be constraining this. This is a policy matter and they should say, you aren't allowed to do it. Sorry, we're going to have a more rational policy. They got more rational policies in Europe. It's not as though no one knows how to do it. They do know how to do it. Thank you very much. But we've been unable to get the board to grapple with that issue. The Toronto Police Services Board, in John Sewell's opinion, has failed to give proper direction to its police force. If this is true, it's not because the board lacks authority, but only because it lacks the confidence to exercise it. Susan Ang chaired the Toronto Police Services Board between 1991 and 1995, and she says that it has all the formal power it needs. The law actually mandates the uh, civilian board with all of the uh, usual powers that you might find in a corporate board. The difficulty, I think, is, first of all, the lack of training that the board members have. And uh, when I was there, we tried to st uh, standardize the training that was available. We were getting funding for that training. We were trying to develop the training on a regular basis for all the appointments uh, for the appointees, who up until that point, many had not served on a public board at all and were not aware of what the responsibilities were. The, the second problem is the lack of, uh, they are part-time members, they're not compensated much, uh, they don't have a great deal of support, any kind of staff support or other resources are, is provided from the chief of police, which means that it's very hard for them to have any kind of independent governance structure whatsoever. The most important drawback, however, is the lack of political will in actually exercising the full extent of the governance authority. Nobody wants to call the police chief on the carpet. Uh, no politician wants to do it. No uh, upstanding citizen of the community wants to do it. But the fact remains that if we want to have any impact on how police officers and police organizations operate and behave, we have to ask the appropriate questions and set the standards. Susan Eng tried to set the standards and ask the questions, but she says that the proper exercise of the board's authority was often taken for hostility. The SIU, which comes into her story later, is the Special Investigations Unit, the agency charged with investigating deaths or serious bodily harm caused by the police. I and our board were prepared to ask the questions that other people left unasked. And when we asked them perfectly legitimately, it was thought that we were thereby accusing 
the police agency of wrongdoing. And, you know, that's not so. And uh, that is why so many people today on police boards do not challenge the police and do not ask the questions because they're already named as, you know, an enemy of the people if they dare to question. If you look back at the record and look at exactly what was done during the time that I was chair, you'll find that a lot of the issues that were raised were simply uh, a proper exercise of the board's authority to, to either ask questions or to stave off the police opinion until the appropriate authorities had researched the issue. For example, if there in fact was a police shooting, the SIU had the responsibility to do the investigation. Although they had just been called, the police force jumped up to say there was no misconduct. Well, the investigation had not yet gone through, so it was not really appropriate for me as the chair of the civilian agency in governance to jump up and also say that there was nothing wrong. I wasn't saying that there was something wrong, but I did say that the investigation was ongoing. And that lack of immediate cheerleading was considered to be an opposition to the police force. Another example is in regards to the budget. Every year in the fall, the police have to present their budget to city council and ask that it be increased. And what was happening at the time that I was there, we had an outrageously huge budget that took over 40% of the city budget. And city councillors were complaining, other city agencies were squeezed out. And the question was, did the police always have an ironclad budget request? And uh, the usual response of the chief was to say that the streets would run with blood if he didn't get all of his budget requests. And I pointed out that this was the politics of fear, that uh, we as the civilian board had not yet seen the budget estimates, by the way, and that we should, and that we should look at it uh, carefully and decide what we actually had to have. Maybe we should impose some zero budgeting principles. Maybe we should impose some good management principles to decide how much we actually need and to support and, and demonstrate what it was that uh, we, we should be granted. That was considered to be a criticism of the police force. And there was, a, you know, people were outraged. The chief stormed out of meetings and so on because I had called him on the politics of fear. Susan Eng served as chair of the Toronto Police Services Board while the NDP government of Bob Ray was in office in the early 1990s. Its successor was Mike Harris's common sense revolution. One of its promises was to free the police from burdensome regulation, and this was quickly fulfilled. The independent complaints commission John Sewell had helped to establish was abolished, and the police were once again made responsible for investigating themselves. And if the political alliance between the Harris Tories and the police needed to be made any plainer, Toronto's new chief, Julian Fantino, was given a hero's welcome at the party's annual convention. Julian Falconer is a Toronto lawyer who has often acted for people claiming to have been wronged by the police or for the families of people killed by the police. He deplores the rollback in Ontario, but he also says that the institutions of civilian governance weren't that strong in the first place because of a fundamental flaw. We have institutionalized the notion 
of police cheerleading. And we have virtually no training for police services board members to gain the expertise necessary to critically analyze police conduct and manage police services. Invariably, uh, appointees to police services boards are different forms of political appointments. Uh, the turnover is extraordinary. Uh, the Toronto Police Services Board alone, uh, in the next year, there could be as many as five or six new members. Uh, the point being that with a turnover rate as high as most of these boards experience, with uh, political appointments as often meant to cater to police interests as anything else, and with people with very little expertise, you get ships that don't have anyone at the, uh, at the tiller. These rudderless ships, in Julian Falconer's view, are no match for the police. The police are simply too rich, too powerful, and too well organized. Politically speaking, it's suicide to be on the wrong side of police interests. The police have an expertise in lobbying their agenda that makes them a very powerful institution. They, uh, at times, may rely upon the specter of crime to generate fear in the community and point to politicians who, who aren't on board as, as people that are supporting crime and criminals. Uh, similarly, they are very well moneyed and they, are, they own the expertise and they are consistent. They're the ones that stay in place. As permanent professionals. So then you add to that mix police associations that also represent a strong lobby and you have a very potent mix. To what extent can litigation serve as an alternative? Well it's it's a sad alternative really and uh, I know there's a one has to take my words with a grain of salt since I, I appear to be making a living from that sad alternative and that's fair enough but it doesn't change the fact that I think it's a poor alternative. It's a poor alternative because it fills a vacuum in leadership. Bad policing should be something all of society is concerned with, but too often uh, citizens that are the subject of bad policing have little uh, choice but to turn to uh, civil courts for remedies because accountability structures are very poor at uh, analyzing the conduct and uh, dealing with it by way of uh, discipline of the officers, uh, by way of uncovering of the truth of what happened, and by way of acknowledgement of mistakes made. Those aren't things that our police institutions are good at doing. So citizens increasingly are following up on the American experience and pursuing matters in the courts. An example of how a more accountable police can be pursued through litigation is a case recently decided by the Supreme Court called Odavji Estate versus Woodhouse. In September of 1997, Toronto police shot and killed an unarmed 22-year-old man named Manish Odavji. He was the driver of the getaway car in a bank robbery, and he was shot in the back fleeing from police. Shootings by police are investigated, as I mentioned earlier, by an independent government agency called the SIU, the Special Investigations Unit. But the officers involved, Julian Falconer says, failed to cooperate with the SIU. The, the model that the Special Investigations Unit follows is no different than any other homicide case. Somebody's life has been taken. The scene is secured. Witnesses are supposed to be segregated. 
That is not discuss the matters with one another. Generally, if they're professional witnesses, they provide written accounts of what happened. In the Odavji case, despite an express request through the chief that the officers be segregated, they met as crews for hours on end discussing the case. They, notwithstanding the request from these same officers for statements, they left the police station and went home. Ultimately, statements weren't given till days later. And uh, notes that would ordinarily be in an officer's notebook in a detailed fashion ended up on single pieces of full scap for a whole evening. Officers whose primary job were to be involved as surveillance officers on a stakeout of a bank robbery, they knew the robbery was going to happen beforehand, claimed to have saw little or nothing, whereas private citizens hundreds of meters away saw more than they did. Triggering uh, André Marin, the director of SIU at the time, to say in a press release that his investigation was hampered by the fact that the officers' notes did not represent independent recollections and the fact that the officers saw little or nothing and were unhelpful in, their, uh, in, in what they claimed to have seen or didn't see. At the end of the day, this kind of behavior serves little to foster confidence in the, in the enforcement arm of the police, and it simply reinforces the notion that when police officers are called into question, they circle the wagons. And, and obviously this is the problem at the heart of the Odavji case. Julian Falconer says that the police have failed to cooperate with the SIU in a number of cases in which he has acted for the families of people killed by the police. And so, in this case, the family sued the officers, the police services board, and the solicitor general for abuse of public office. In essence, the Udavji family sued the police for their failure to cooperate with uh, the Special Investigations Union, sued the police for basically sabotaging the investigation into their son's death. There is no doubt that... uh, that many would say, well, Manish Odavji was a, was a person who was uh, clearly involved in a bank robbery. He was a driver of a getaway car. And therefore, being shot in the course of being involved in a robbery uh, is not surprising. However, the real issue at stake in the Odavji case, leaving aside the fact that this young man was shot in the back, fleeing unarmed from the police, the real question is, even if the shooting is justified, why would the police deliberately deliberately uh, fail to uh, provide statements as to how the shooting happened, fail to provide proper accounts in a timely fashion, etc. So at the end of the day, what we were litigating in Odavji was the right of the public to expect peace officers to perform their legal duties and to act legally. For the Odavji family, they can never trust police because they will always People who, and you must understand, uh, Manish Davji's parents are law-abiding citizens, modest background, who have never been in trouble with the law. Obviously, their son went astray. But the bottom line is these are people who never did anything wrong and could not understand why the police at minimum would not say what happened and why they shot uh, their son. The police attempted to block this suit on the grounds that they could not be privately sued in this fashion. But on December 5th of 2003, a unanimous Supreme Court ruled that the Odavji family could sue the police. The court excluded the police services board and the solicitor general from the proceedings, saying they were not liable in this case, but the suit against the police can now proceed. Julian Falconer considers the Supreme Court's decision a milestone. 
what has to be understood is that Odavji represents uh, an essential uh, tool for any citizen and their counsel uh, for accessing the courts and for ensuring state accountability. No longer is it a question now of whether you're entitled to call the public official on their conduct. Now the courts will simply look to the quality of the conduct and ask the important questions. Was this a deliberately legal act? And if it was, did it foreseeably cause harm to, your, to, to the private citizen? Why is all of this important? Well, at the end of the day, uh, increasingly public officials will have to recognize uh, that they not only are capable of being called to account by public agencies, they are now at the behest of private citizens going to have to become increasingly accountable. I think that's a good thing for a democracy. This is Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy. Tonight we're presenting the fifth episode of In Search of Security by David Cayley. At the beginning of tonight's program, we pose the question of whether the glass is half empty or half full with regard to civilian control of police. The answer for Toronto, on which I've mainly focused so far, is surely half empty. I think a lot of what John Sewell, Susan Eng, and Julian Falconer have said has a more general application. Half the police forces in the country seem to be embroiled in scandal of some sort at the moment, but there are certain ways in which Toronto is a special case. It has an unusually strong and aggressive police union. It's not every city in Canada where the head of the police association would boast about having a member of the police services board tailed. And Ontario's recently replaced Conservative government did undeniably reduce oversight of the police. So is there also a case to be made for half full? Some say yes, if you look at the overall trend. One person who sees definite progress is Shirley Heafy, who heads the RCMP Public Complaints Commission. She feels that her commission has increased the accountability of the RCMP during her tenure. And she points to one case with particular pride. Two little French communities in the, Acadia, the Acadian Peninsula had their French schools uh, closed down by the government, or they were about to close them down, and they'd worked for years to get these little schools in their communities so their children wouldn't have to be bused for hours. And the government said, we're closing them down. And they said, no, you're not. And so they demonstrated. Uh, and this was communities of about 800 uh, people each, mothers, fathers, aunts, uncles, and children, they demonstrated. Well, the RCMP came down on them with the tactical troop, with uh, helicopters, sharpshooters, dogs. It was incredible. People were bitten because they were afraid of the dogs and they were running away from the dogs, and that was interpreted as you're, you're running away from us, you won't let us arrest you. So these people were so frightened so frightened of the police that they said to me when they complained, they waited nine months to complain. They were too frightened. They're a minority in New Brunswick, and the, and the, the RCMP police is there, and they thought, well, what do we do? Should we, shouldn't we? Finally, when they did, they didn't trust this commission either. They said, you're just, 
you're just a federal agency anyway, what do you care? And I went to visit them and I said, you either trust me or you don't. If you don't, I'm not going to bother because I'm not going to waste my time if you're not going to cooperate. And, but if you do, I promise you I will do everything I can to look at everything that was done and report back. They went along with it. We did the investigation. Everyone cooperated, including the RCMP. And uh, when the report came out, the RCMP really delivered nicely. They did apologize. I, that, I think that was a first. There have been one or two since then. Apologies, I mean. But it's not something they did. An apology for these kinds, they just didn't apologize. But they did, and really did it well. They just gathered all the people together. I recommended that they do it, and they did it. So the community was really happy about it. It made a difference. They then sort of trusted the police again and sort of reconciled. They'd known these police officers for a long time, some of them, not all of them. And uh, they just were more comfortable, and they said so. Now we feel that we're safe again. You know, they've apologized. They've talked to us, and they've admitted they did. They really mishandled it. We did some things wrong, too, and I said that they did when they did. And so they accepted that, too. They said, yeah, w we did something wrong, but they did, and they apologized, and we're fine now. And I've checked up on them regularly since then, and it's going really well. So that was a really good, very successful one uh, that I'm really proud of. That's the one I, I'm most excited about. Shirley Heafy thinks that RCMP policing of demonstrations has also improved as a result of recommendations she made after the APEC summit in Vancouver in 1997. On that occasion, the RCMP tried to keep protesters out of the sight of the visiting heads of state by the liberal use of pepper spray and illegal arrests. There are big changes that have taken place, and I've seen them in the different summits that have taken place since. Just one example, in APEC, the members and, and uh, in um, New Brunswick, the members were masked. That was scary for people. Great big uh, masks and heavy, heavy uh, uniforms, no names. So they were doing all these things. Nobody could identify them. That's unacceptable because if people want to complain, how can they complain? These people are out there, they're doing all this, there's no name tags on them whatsoever. So no matter what they do, you can't identify them. Well, that was a big recommendation in, in New Brunswick. That's not the way we live. It's not a democratic way of living. Well, they all have name tags now. That's just one, you know, one example. There are, there are many others, but you don't see them without name tags now. When they uh, in Quebec City and w was one in Moncton as well. They all had name tags. So my two investigators who did the New Brunswick investigation were so pleased when they, they're ex-police officers. And they said, did you see? They all had their name tags. And there are a number of things we noticed. They now count, keep very close tabs on the on pepper spray, tear gas canisters in APEC. They just, just throwing out the gas and the pepper spray uh, way beyond what policy said they were allowed to do, but nobody was keeping track of anything, so there was an abuse of it, there was misuse, and now it's very, very orderly. They have a certain number, and who's used this, and how many were used, so that we can identify and see if you use 26 canisters in an hour, you misused. <laughs> that was misuse, uh, and what were the circumstances. And so. 
it's easier now to follow through and look and see if there was potential for uh, abuse. So it's, they've, they've made a lot of changes. First of all, they do mediation a lot more now. They do, they do prep work ahead of time. They go and talk to the people and try to come to an agreement as to how they're going to conduct their demonstrations, what's acceptable, what isn't, what they will get arrested for if they, like all that kind of communication w did not happen before uh, in Vancouver. Well, that has changed drastically. They do all that prep work ahead of time, and they have mediators or consultants on hand to try and, and which is a more civilized way in our in our society to to do things. If you talk to people, you have a better chance if they're cooperating with you, than if you just hit them over the head because they're doing something bad. So that has changed a lot as well. Shirley Heafy is talking here about real changes, but progress is always relative. It depends on your expectations and on the baseline from which you measure. As she found when she reviewed tapes of demonstrations in Quebec City several years after APEC with some younger colleagues. My people here who work on some of these complaints were outraged at some of the things they saw, but they're new. They see these things for the first time, and it was embarrassing. I said, you know what? They were upset about it, and they said, aren't you upset about this? Look at th this, this guy was, I said, yeah, I don't like that. But if you had seen what I saw in APEC and in New Brunswick, especially in New Brunswick, you would see the huge improvements that have been made. There are always some who, always the odd abuse here and there, but a huge improvement. They've really, really made some big changes. be much of a solace to the demonstrators who were tear-gassed in Quebec City. But Shirley Heafy argues that what's important is the direction of change. She's not complacent. In fact, she's been quite outspoken in her criticisms of the way in which the Maoris have been exercising their new national security responsibilities. That's a story I'll pick up later in this series. But her point for our purposes here is that things have improved. Another insider who sees a generally positive trend in police governance is Philip Stenning. He's currently professor in criminology at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand. But for most of his career, he was at the University of Toronto, where police governance was one of his specialties. You know, when I first came to Canada, just to take the Toronto Police Service as an example, most of the police commission's meetings were closed meetings. Um, there was very little public information available about the police service. The budget, I think, was pretty much a two-line budget, sort of capital expenditure and operational expenditure. There was no real detail about, you know, how money was being spent and why it was being spent this way rather than another way. That's all changed. And it's not all changed as much as I would have liked to see it change, but it certainly has changed quite dramatically over those 20 years. You know, now, if you look at the budget of the, of the Toronto Police Service now, it's a very substantial document which gives a lot of detail and sets, tries to set the budget in terms of priorities of the force and identify what those priorities will be. And there are public meetings of the police commission in which members of the public get a chance to um, comment on the budget and make suggestions and recommendations and criticisms. 
I mean, it's a whole different ball game. It's a much more open, detailed, participative process now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And I think that's good. Now, there has certainly been some retrenchment. I mean, I think there was a time in the early 90s when this was sort of reaching its peak, when the the commission was led by people who were quite committed to this. And I think more recently, there's been a less open approach to uh, police governance. But looking over the 20 to 30 year period, there's no doubt in my mind that there's been progress in terms of accountability and openness of police governance. And I think that's a very positive development. Philip Stenning admits that police governance took a step backwards in Toronto during the years after Susan Eng left the Police Services Board in 1995. But recently, there have been signs of a return to more demanding oversight. A new mayor and a new council, for example, who seem to recognize that they have to get control of the ballooning police budget, which now eats more of the city's revenue than transit, fire, ambulance, and most social services combined. Getting control will ultimately require more openness by the police, keener supervision by the Police Services Board, and more participation by the City Council, all of which tends to confirm Philip Stenning's point about an overall trend towards greater accountability. Change is gradual, he says, and generational. And while the old guard are still fighting their last battles, a new breed of police manager has begun to appear. I think what we're seeing now is a new generation of, of middle managers in, in police services who are quite different from their predecessors, who are much better educated, much more sophisticated, and have completely different expectations about what their organizations could potentially become. And I think that change is going to continue it's not going to happen overnight, but I think over time there will be a, quite a transformation in the personnel of the public police, particularly at the senior management levels. And, you know, this is a very critical moment for the public police because, as you probably know, the public police expanded enormously during the 1960s. huge number of police officers were hired in the 1960s, and uh, a lot of those police officers who were hired in the late 50s and in the 60s are now retiring. So there's a huge gap now in the sort of middle to senior manager level of the police. And there's a whole new breed of, of young Turks coming up to fill those places who have had a very different experience as police officers than the people they're replacing. One reason they're different, according to Philip Stenning, is the dramatic change in police recruitment practices. For generations, the police essentially cloned themselves, hiring young and molding to type. But this has now changed, he says. The typical police recruit now is a very different uh, kettle of fish from his or her predecessor. For a start, there's more women, and that's, I think, a good thing because, obviously, we want the police to reflect, to some extent, the society that they police. And to have a, a police force which is, you know, overwhelmingly male doesn't make a lot of sense in the 21st century. But more to the point, I think uh, 
is the fact that the typical recruit now to the police is no longer a pimply 19-year-old, you know, straight out of school, but is typically a, someone in their late 20s who has often had other experience in the workplace before they join the police, often has some post-secondary education, is more mature, and has a different uh, attitude towards the police career, I think, than the sort of bright-eyed 19-year-old who used to get hired. And that's the kind of person who's now coming up through the police service and who has quite different expectations from the police service than than recruits used to. Uh, you know, the idea that you just join the police and do as you're told and, and don't question anything and uh, don't show any initiative is pretty much dead now. One would like to think that it's pretty much dead anyway. Philip Stenning says that the police could stand to go even farther in changing their recruiting practices. It is still generally true, for example, that the only way into a police organization is through the bottom. You can start only as a constable. This excludes talent as well as reinforcing the insularity of the police, and in Stenning's view, ought to change. But he does generally look back on a generation of uneven but real progress in policing. Police, he says, are now more accountable, more representative, and more enterprising than when he began in the field. However, there remains, in his view, a huge unresolved issue. The proper relationship between police and government. And here he comes closer to what John Sewell Susan Eng and Julian Falconer were saying earlier. At the center of this question is the doctrine of police independence. It holds, in essence, that the police answer to the law and not to politicians and must be free at all costs from political interference. The problem, Philip Stenning says, is that this allows politicians to make a virtue of their failure to properly supervise the police. What must be understood, he says finally, is that independence demands an equal measure of accountability. I think there's no question that certain aspects of policing, the police need to be free from direct, from political direction by government. You know, we can't have governments telling police who to arrest and who to charge and what to charge them with. You know, that would undermine the public confidence in the in the impartiality of the police and the impartiality of the criminal justice system. So there's no question that certain aspects of policing need to be protected from direct political interference. But having said that, I think once you give police that kind of autonomy, you absolutely have to put in place adequate public accountability for the decisions they make. And that requires open systems of government. It requires effective complaint procedures so that where someone has a complaint against the police, that complaint can be carefully investigated and thoroughly investigated and the public can have confidence that the police if they've done something wrong, will be held to account for it. And at all times, the elected government should be able to demand accounts from the police as to what they've done and why they've done it. And this idea that there's certain sort of no-go areas 
that the government can't demand explanations from the police, to me, is thoroughly undemocratic and very dangerous. And the difficulty here, I think, is that politicians see some benefit in, in that situation because it allows them not to have to take responsibility for what the police do. Do you remember that famous uh, statement that Pierre Trudeau made about how the government has a responsibility not to know what the police are doing? And I think that reflects quite a widely held view amongst politicians that policing issues are so sensitive that that there's actually some benefit in being able to say, well, I'm not responsible for it. But governments are responsible for policing and must be held responsible for policing. And accountability mechanisms must be in place which will allow us to hold governments responsible for the way police do their job. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to Part 5 of In Search of Security by David Cayley. Our 10-hour series continues next Wednesday with a program called Security Without the State. The series was inspired by an international conference organized by the Law Commission of Canada. Our thanks to the Commission and its Director of Research, Dennis Cooley. Studio production tonight was by Dave Field. Richard Handler was the editorial consultant, Liz Naj, the associate producer. A transcript of the series is available for $25. Tapes or CDs of the 10 programs cost $75. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or email us at ideas at cbc.ca or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The news follows, and the arts today, and between the covers. Music